Good morning, church. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. We're going to look at Acts chapter 2 this morning, verses 1 through 13. As Joel mentioned earlier, we do have uh, these Acts journaling scripture journals. If you would like one of these, Joel has some in the back, and you can just put up your hand and say you'd like one. Uh, If you'd like us to bring one around to you, we're hoping that you would use this, uh, something like your study guide, uh, that the scriptures themselves would form our questions and prompt our thoughts and curiosity uh, this morning. So make sure that you grab one of these and let's make use of the word itself together. It's a really handy booklet if you haven't seen it already with the uh, scripture text on the left and uh, an area for notes and so on on the right. We hope that you would take advantage of that. Bring it to your community group and bring your thoughts and what you've uh, been praying through and working through and asking questions about when we gather together in that way. Now, as I mentioned already, we are in Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 13 this morning. And if I could summarize this passage, I think it could be most simply Uh, summarized in this way. The Spirit of God upon the people of God declaring the gospel of God. Now, the central theme that I think is beginning to emerge in this book of Acts is that the church and its mission belongs to God. You heard it, right? It's the Spirit, what? Of God. Upon whom? The people of God declaring the gospel of God. Everything that is taking place in our passage this morning belongs to the Lord. Yeah, we, we're witnesses in the world. And so we've titled the sermon series, Witnesses, all right, to, to place an emphasis upon who we are. But let us never forget that as His witnesses, we belong to Him. And if we belong to Him as His witnesses, so also does our mission and the means of its accomplishment. The church and its mission belong to God. So if we are going to discover who we are as His witnesses, and if we are going to discover the nature of our mission and the way that we are to carry it out, we will discover it in the Scriptures. So please... Follow along with me, Acts chapter 2, verses 2 through 13. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heavens a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, the visitors 
from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others, mocking, said, They are filled with new wine. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word this morning. Again, we thank You that You've recorded it, that You inspired the author Luke to record the Gospel for us in great detail and to record this account of the birth of this church and Your church planting work. We pray that we would pay attention, that we would receive from it what is there, and that we would be changed. That You're this same Spirit the Spirit of the living God, holy, would dwell and work among us, your church, even this morning. Thank you, Lord. We pray this in your good name, in the name of Jesus. Amen. So a crucial question that I have of this text, especially as a church planter, we, we, uh, my wife and I moved here to this town about six and a half years ago, and coming here to Brevard County, uh, we came here as church planters, desiring to, to plant the gospel and see God grow up His church. And so a crucial question that I have for this passage is, how did God plant His church? I mean, it's His church, and He's starting it up. He's getting it going. How is He going to go about the planting of His church? Now, last year I preached this same scripture uh, in order to explain what we believe about our celebration together, what we're doing right now together. And the first point of that sermon was that celebration requires God. Well, that should go without saying, right? But what is often missed in all the study and uh, throughout uh, all of the, the book of Acts and about the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2 is the fact that the Holy Spirit is God. We're, we're talking about the Holy Spirit, the, the mighty rushing wind and the tongues of fire and the, the, the believers being sent out as witnesses by means of this power and authority. We're talking about God. God, by His Spirit, moves disciples, and the whole crowd begins to preach, to retell and believe the great story of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the work of God. And here's what that means. God is the primary celebrant. He's the one that, that comes and sets on fire the proclamation of His mighty works. God is the first proclaimer. God is the first witness to His own glory. If God did not bear witness about Himself and send His Spirit that we might bear witness about Him, we would not know Him or His glory. Celebration and discipleship is, is a Spirit-empowered endeavor. Listen. A Spirit-empowered endeavor to join in the already ongoing work of God to proclaim His glory. So that means that celebration did not begin at 9.30 this morning. Celebration has been going on in the heavenly places for eternity. 
as God celebrates the greatness of His glory. Our proclamation, our witness is a witness to what God has already revealed. So how did God plan His church? Listen, before we answer that question, we have to be clear that it is God who planted the church and it belongs to Him. How does God plant His church? Listen, He does it. That's how. It's only when we get real clear, real grounded about that, that we will see clearly that God planted His church by making His glory known among the nations. God's the one who's doing it, and He's doing it by making Himself known. You see, if we understand that God is the first and foundational church planter, We've already covered in recent weeks that the Lord is the chief shepherd or senior pastor of the church. He is the first and foundational church planter. If we understand that, then we will go about our work of church planting with the expectation that God is still the one planting His church. We know from the Scriptures that what God begins, He finishes. And we could agree together, the church isn't done, right? So God is still about the church planting endeavor. And if we understand that, we will be released from the burden that there is some great work, some great teaching, some great display that we must go and do in and of ourselves that that would be the means of our planting. And we will therefore be free to make much of God, to make much of His glory and His gospel and not ourselves. Friends, I don't know if you know this about the way that things happen at 8 o'clock. I know that some of you definitely do. These doors open up at about 8 And by 9 o'clock, all of this has to be set up, and the band has to run a couple songs, and the sound has to be mixed in in one hour. That's not possible, okay? At some point during the course of that time, we say, okay, we're done. (laughs) And we stop. And you know what? We're okay with that. And we're okay that the mix is, you know, pretty good. (laughs) And, And the drapes are up, you know, Okay, and I think that we have all the lyrics on the screen, and we're okay with that, because we don't believe that any one of those things are the means of the establishment of the church. Our hope is only that we do just well enough that we can get out of the way of proclaiming the glory of our great God. Glory, glory, to our God. I think that happened this morning. And for that, we rejoice. And that, if it had any impact in any one of our souls, is the work of the Spirit of God to reveal the glory of God to the heart of a human soul. How is God planting His church? Well, He's doing it. And He's doing it by means of His Spirit and His Word. Now, I want to pay attention to the passage this morning. We're going to walk through, especially the first paragraph here. And we're going to see the work of God as the Spirit fills the house. The passage begins in verse 1, when the day of Pentecost 
arrived. Now, for many of us here, we're like, okay, the day of Pentecost, whatever that is, it arrived. So on some day, meaning something, right? Well, the day of Pentecost is called Pentecost because it is the festival of the 50th day. Penta, if you notice that in there, five five weeks or the 50th day. It's a harvest festival that falls seven weeks after Passover. I'm sorry, I said five weeks just a moment ago. Seven weeks, seven weeks after the Passover. You will remember that the Passover is the week where Jesus was crucified. And here we are seven weeks and 50 days after. Jesus has spent 40 of those days appearing to his disciples and reminding them of his teaching and commissioning them to go and wait upon the Spirit of God in Jerusalem. And he has ascended into heaven from which he governs the church and from which he establishes his kingdom rule in the hearts of mankind. And the Jews had begun to associate Pentecost with the celebration of God giving the law at Sinai. Now you may remember that the giving of the law was accomplished in the midst of great thunders and a great display of fire on the mountain. Right? And that's what the Jews are celebrating there on that day, on the day of Pentecost, the day that the Lord came down and met the people and gave the way that He would establish a people on the earth. And He did so with a loud sound and with fire. This morning we will see the presence of God in yet another great sound and with another great fire. Verse 1 continues, they were all together in one place. Acts is about God establishing His church. And He's establishing His church as His witnesses in this world. And Jesus' instructions to His disciples, what, they, what should they do? They, they, should, they should wait. They should go to Jerusalem and wait. That's in Acts chapter 1. It was in Jerusalem that the Lord would anoint His church to go and be His witnesses. So the disciples, 120 in all, they gathered together and devoted themselves in prayer in Jerusalem in the upper room. They are together with the Word and prayer. Now this morning we'll see that the church launched out of that upper room on a mission to celebrate the glory of God among the nations. But there is no way to celebrate the story of God unless they were together. Why were they together? This is essential to our witness. Our witness is fundamentally a witness that is together. Why? Because our story is a story about people who were once far off being brought near and being made one at the foot of the cross. That is what we are bearing witness to. A a risen Lord who has made a people. He hasn't just saved me. He saved us together. The Gospel isn't just about you and God. And you know, more than likely, most people in this room agree with that. Like, you've heard me say that before, and you're cool with it. It's not just me and God. It's, it's, it's us and 
the church together in God. But I'll tell you, there's still something that rises up in us, in, I believe in our culture, even in our county, that the gospel isn't even about you and your nuclear family and God. We can treat our, our households as if they were tiny little kingdoms that God is saving in isolation from others. Rather, our, our households are together being redeemed and And the Lord is shaping us and working in us as His Spirit fills all the members of the church and equips the saints with His gifts and we operate together as His church. The Gospel is about Christ and His church. The Gospel is not about you off on your own. The Gospel is not about me and my household. The Gospel is about a people a people who were once alone, who are now together in Christ. The Spirit of God fills the entire house and the Spirit rested upon each one of them. There is a particularization in the passage. The Spirit doesn't just sort of hover generally, but rather He comes and makes Himself known to each particular one gifting them for the purpose of their witness. So, it, But it is as we are gathered together, devoted to the Lord in prayer, that the Spirit of God brings power and authority upon us to be as witnesses. And what we declare is that the risen Christ has made us one together, reconciled to God. Verse 2 says, Suddenly, right in the middle of their being together, suddenly, as they were devoted to prayer, suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. Perhaps you've heard of a perfect storm. There was that movie in the 90s of the the perfect storm that, that rocked the Ocean. A perfect storm is a, a coming together of unforeseen meteorological events to create a storm of catastrophic intensity. Listen, what happened in that upper room is a perfect storm. No one in the room foresaw the power or intensity of what the Spirit would do. So no one in the room created it. No one in the room fashioned it. No one in the room strategized it. No one in the room cast vision for it. They waited upon the Lord, and the Lord brought a storm. The Spirit blew where He willed, and the sight and the sound was more than the room could contain, and it burst out into the streets. And verse 3 tells us that it burst out into the streets in tongues as of fire, appeared to them and rested on each one of them. Friends, that's not normal. (laughs) That's not something that we just sort of do on the weekends. This is the power of God to communicate something. In the Scriptures, R.C. Sproul points out that fire has two primary symbolic meanings. The first is divine presence. We've already talked about it. Pentecost, right? The great fire on the mountain as God meets His people and establishes them in His law and in His way. 
divine presence, his power and his light. We have in the Old Testament, the burning bush that's not consumed. We have the pillar of fire that guides them by night. We have a pillar of smoke. And you say, where does the smoke come from, right? We have in the New Testament, bearing witness and repeating the old, that our God is a consuming fire. We're told in the New Testament that the Spirit illumines the Scripture, brings light and understanding to the truth of the Scripture for all who would hear it. The fire, the tongues of fire are communicating that the presence of God is here and He is doing a work to manifest Himself and to bear light and understanding to the truth of the mighty works of God. And that's exactly what He does. Secondly, second primary symbolic meaning is warmth and affection. be honest, I, I wasn't looking for that one. I had to go to R.C. Sproul to find that, but it's there. It's there. The Laodicean church had lost their warmth. They were neither hot nor cold. They were growing tepid in their affection for Christ and dull in their passion to walk in His ways. They lacked warmth and affection. And it's the Spirit who brings intensity to the spiritual walk. It's the life-giving presence of the Spirit of God that makes our walk spiritual at all. You ever thought about that word? What is spiritual about the gifts? What is spiritual about our walk? Well, what is spiritual about these things? It is that they are the gift of the Spirit and the means of our walk. Any warmth or affection or intensity in our spiritual walk is the consequence of the Holy Spirit's activity in our lives. It's the life-giving presence of the Spirit of God at work among the people of God. It is truly life in the Spirit as a spirit takes ordinary means of grace. And what do I mean by that? Say it quite often. Ordinary, he, he takes ordinary means of grace. Things like the Word. Just reading. It's just words, right? Prayer. Just thoughts thrown up to God, right? Reflection before the Lord in His Word. Fellowship. It's just people together, right? Just a bunch of people who happen to be in the same place eating a meal, perhaps. Worship. Just people singing, obeying, walking in faith. It's the Spirit of God that takes those ordinary means of grace and, and imbues them with a spiritual power. The Christian life is ordinary. I hope that's an encouragement to you. Because some of you are like, I just don't, I don't feel like there's, you know, that thing. That, that thing that I've been waiting for. It, it's actually here in chapter 2. They were waiting for something. They had, if they would read the Scriptures, as we would see, Peter notices after it comes, they might have noticed, but... They had no idea of the perfect storm that was about to hit. The perfect storm hits, and there's a mighty sound and rushing wind and tongues as of fire, right? 
And then they go into the streets and there's a proclamation and people are being saved all over the place. And then what do they do? Well, they keep running around yelling and speaking in other tongues, right? No. You see them by the end of the chapter, they're back to the ordinary means of grace. They're devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. They're fellowshipping together. They're eating together. They're praying again together. Why? They didn't see a disconnect. They saw the ordinary means as the place where that powerful Spirit of God would work in the people of God that they would be as witnesses. The Christian life is ordinary. It's not flashy. It looks as simple as a collection of disciples huddled together in prayer. It's the Spirit that breathes life-giving spiritual vitality to the ordinary means. It's the Spirit that breathes that life. The Spirit makes the ordinary Christian life something way more than flashy. The Spirit causes the faith-filled man to burn with a spiritual intensity. That we go with fervor to the ordinary things. And we expect the Lord God to meet us when He wills. We remember that time when He met us and He told our hearts that we were lost in our sin. We remember that time when the Lord forgave us of our sin. We remember that time that our Christ died on the cross. We remember our first love and the warmth and affection is kindled. And we go back to the Word and we go back to prayer and we go back to the fellowship and we go back to worship and wait. Verse 4 says, They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. That is, the disciples went into the streets and they began to bear witness about the mighty works of God in such a way that many nations and ethnicities who had gathered in Jerusalem that day could understand in their own language. This is a very big deal. And it, it's a... It's a bigger deal than simply tongues as of fire flaming in the streets. The big deal is that the many nations are hearing the gospel of God. I believe the central reason for the many languages that the giving of the Spirit is to demonstrate the power of God given to the church for their work as witnesses. Do you believe that? Do you believe that the Spirit of God has been given to the church of God that we could be witnesses to the ends of the earth? The Spirit demonstrates to the nations that the gospel is actually for the nations. Friends, that's good news. That's literally world-changing, and it did. The gospel isn't local news. It isn't regional news. It's it's to be broadcast, to be translated, to be syndicated in every corner of the earth. The Lord God is actively redeeming peoples of the world. And He's doing it by means of the person and work of the Son. And the Holy Spirit is going to take the message to a worldwide stage. That's the message of the many tongues. 
I'm reminded again of the contrast between Genesis 11 and 12. Spoke on this a a couple weeks ago. You might remember in Genesis 11, we have a people that gather at Babel and they gather to make a name for themselves. They're going to build a tower to the heavens. They're all going to gather there, make themselves great. And God shatters their self-righteous rebellion. He confuses their language and then scatters them to the ends of the earth, right? And then in Genesis 12, In great contrast, God comes to a nobody named Abram. A man with no land, no heritage. And God makes a promise to make that man's name great. And that through him, the Lord would bless all the families of the earth. Now you read our passage this morning. And do you hear it? Do you hear the fulfillment of of that promise in today's passage? The people of the nations, they've gathered again. There they are in Jerusalem. And they come with their languages still confused. But this time, the Lord gives them words in their scattered languages. And He will again scatter them to the ends of the earth for a far different purpose. This time, they would go with a many languages. Yes but with a unified message. A unified message by which they would bear witness to the fact that the redeems from every family, every tribe, every tongue, every nation may be reconciled to God through the Gospel of Jesus Christ. God is undoing battle. That's the message of the languages of Acts chapter 2. Every corner of the earth And the people were amazed. The people were astounded and amazed. I want to take just a few moments with the remainder of our passage here, verses 5 through 13. And in it, there are two amazements, two astonishments that stand out among the people who see all these happenings that day. The first astonishment, amazement is in verse 7, just before 7. It says, because each one was hearing them in his own language, and they were amazed and astonished, saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? Just uneducated men and women who shouldn't be speaking these amazing things. The overwhelming information we have about these apostles and the witnesses they, the, the witness that they bear about themselves is that they were nobodies. That isn't just what people said about them, that's what they say about themselves. And they know themselves well. Before Jesus called them, they had nothing to commend themselves to Jesus. They weren't the cream of the crop in rabbi school. They were just fishermen, tax collectors. Really? Even during the course of their three-year journey with Jesus, they act like bumbling fools. They don't have a great deal to commend themselves. Acts chapter 4, verse 13, just a couple chapters later, it explicitly states that it was clearly visible that Peter and John were uneducated common men. It isn't that once they got the Holy Spirit, all of a sudden everybody looks at them and says, Wow! Look at those dudes. They're awesome. Now they say, 
I can't believe the words they're saying because they're clearly uneducated, common men. Everybody who saw them, everybody who who observed the apostles would be quick to remind us the apostles are absolutely not responsible for the start of the movement that would change the entire world. The apostles are not the first church planters. That is reserved for the Spirit of the living God. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, It seems to me to be simply ludicrous to suggest that such men, without learning, without any influence or authority, without any money behind them, with none of the means of propaganda that we are familiar with today, that such men, by their own efforts and abilities, could succeed in doing what we read in the pages of this book. How did it come about? There is only one answer. The world was turned upside down, not because of what they did, but because of what God did to them, in them, and by means of them. His witnesses, right? And that is the essential message concerning the Christian church, her meaning, her function, her message, her purpose. Acts bears witness to the reality that God is using ordinary means, even ordinary men and women, imbued with the very Spirit of the living God to set the world on fire, and He's still doing it. If the Lord has answered any of our prayers for this morning, He's doing it this morning. They were amazed at these uneducated common men and what God was doing in their midst. And secondly, in verse 11, it says that we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. Their second amazement was with the mighty works of God and their means of receiving it. Truly, it is a miraculous thing. I don't in any way want to discount the reality that it is a miraculous thing that the disciples spoke in such a way that they could be understood by all the people from these surrounding nations. That is miraculous. But the greater miracle is that their senses were heightened to listen. It's a miracle that the works of God were actually viewed as mighty by these men in the streets. The works of God have been done throughout history, and we have maligned them. We have ignored them. We have treated them as commonplace. But here they see the gospel that they were proclaiming as the mighty works of God. There are always and only but two ways to hear the truth of the gospel. The first requires miracle. The first is to respond with questions, with curiosity, with pursuit, And all of these things are often the indications of the seeds of faith in the heart of a human being. This is how we see many in the streets on that day of Pentecost respond. And it's the miraculous work of the Holy Spirit to grant them faith to be interested at all 
to be curious, to want to know about the Lord and His gospel, about the mighty works of God that Peter would soon stand and proclaim. I want to ask you this. Are you amazed and astonished at the mighty works of God? Does the Word still spark curiosity for you? Do you have questions about God and His gospel that spur you on to know Him and to know His works and to know His ways? Does the gospel still sound like the mighty works of God? It's a mighty work, you know. Do you know and do you remember this morning that you were once dead in sin? Well, we will come to it. The people in this passage, they came to know and to remember that they were dead. What must we do to be saved, they would say. Do you know that apart from Jesus' death on the cross, in your place, you would still be under the right and good judgment of God for your sin? Are you amazed? Are you astonished? Are you amazed that by grace through faith, your sins can be forgiven so that you can be reconciled to a righteous and holy God? Are you astounded and amazed? Or does that just make sense to you? Of course. That means you don't know it. Are you forgotten? Are you amazed that God has made Himself known to you? That He has set, He who is infinitely glorious has set His love upon you according to His wisdom, His purpose, and His glory. There are always and only but two ways to hear the truth of the gospel. Is your curiosity piqued? Do you have questions? Is there any pursuit? Friends, I can ask the questions if the answer to any of those is just this edge of not really. Go to the Lord in His Word and in prayer and wait. Wait upon Him. It's a gift if you would go there. It's a gift of the Spirit's work in you that you would be so curious as to believe that He can meet a heart like yours. The first response is to be astonished and amazed. And that astonishment and amazement only grows as we come to know deeper and more fully the mighty works of God. But there is another response, and it's in the passage this morning. The other response is with ridicule and self-righteous indifference. Look at it. Verse 13. But others, mocking, said, they are filled with new wine. John Calvin writes, There is nothing, no matter how full of wonder, that may not be turned into a joke by men and women who are indifferent to God. That floors me. I have bolded in, in my notes, no matter how full of wonder, and we turn it into a small thing, a jest, a meme. You can almost see the mockers nudging and elbowing each other as they jest. 
I'm positive that if this happened today, somebody would have caught it on their phone, they would have tagged it with drunk Galilean babblers, and it would have become a viral meme overnight, hashtag new wine. You know it would have happened. Just a small thing, just a jest, just a meme, just something silly. And you know what happens there? They elbow each other. (laughs) New wine, right? You know why? Because they have a fear of man. And they want the people around them to think that they're funny, to think that they're cool, to think that they're something. And, And if God is something, all of a sudden they have to be real small. They don't measure up to the glory of God, and so they make small the wonders of God and jest and elbow each other, try to make something of themselves. It's just babble again. And I look around at almost everything that's published today, and I think it's just babble again. It's just jest after jest and joke after joke And so much of it is at what ought to cause us awe and wonder. Listen, the works and the words of God are blazing before their faces, blowing wind at them, and yet the men mock. Listen, the point is not that these men were particularly foolish. The point is, oh, what morons to do that. The point is they're quite normal. They're quite a lot like us. The point is, their culture sounds like my culture. How much more ought we not be surprised at the contempt, the indifference, the scoffing that is so often lodged at the open statement of the truth of Christ? Just scoffing or indifference. It's normal. It's the repeated response of mankind to mock and jest and to become indifferent to the glorious things of God. The crucial question for the church then is this. As we are repeatedly met with yawns or jokes, we will have seen the Spirit of God and by grace were amazed instead of jesting. We need to ask ourselves, should we met with the response of ridicule over and over again, should we cease? Should we change our proclamation a bit? Should we try to dress it up, make it more appealing, make it more entertaining, make it more palatable to the hearer? And this is where I'm going with this whole message. And I think the, the whole purpose of the book of Acts is for us. The church and the mission belong to God. The church and the mission belong to God. We we don't get to mess with it. Martin Lloyd-Jones again says, any notion that Christianity is mainly the result of something that we do is always completely fatally wrong. It's not something that we do. It would seem that there is an emerging theme in the book of Acts. The work of the church is the Lord's work, the Lord's way. God's way is the way of the Spirit of God upon the people of God declaring the gospel of God. And it's either met with faith or it's met with jest and indifference. And that's just the way it is. That's it. That's the sum of our strategy. 
It's a strum of the strategy of God for making His glory known. Apart from the Spirit and His appointed means, we have no access to glory. I don't care how big it is. I don't care how cool it is. I don't care how entertaining it is. I don't care how funny we make it. I don't care if we go viral. We have no access to glory apart from the Spirit of God and the Word of Christ. The great sign that we have to show the world is not our excellence. It's not our entertainment. And it's not our righteousness and it's not our religiosity. If there's anything to show, anything to display, it's the fruit of the Spirit of God that equips the saints to proclaim and bear witness to the Gospel of God. It's that simple. What do we proclaim? We proclaim the Gospel. It's why we claim to be Spirit-filled, Gospel-centered people as a church. Because the Spirit Himself is in the business of declaring the Gospel of God. For the Gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Do you, are you astonished? Are you amazed at the Gospel of God? Today we read of the day of Pentecost, the day the Lord gave His Spirit to the church, and in a very special way. He anoints His seedling church just as it's beginning to burst through the ground with the very wind and the breath that would fill His witnesses as they're blown throughout the land, setting the gospel on fire among the nations. You know, as tragic as the forest fires that have been uh, in the news so much in recent days, perhaps it is the best metaphor for God's work in spreading the gospel. He sparked a blaze, and it blows this way and that, and no one knows. It seems to power itself. No one can predict where the wind will blow, but we can be assured that the power of the fire will set ablaze wherever it blows. I believe that there is a significant caution for us if we'll hear it. If we would receive it with faith, there's a caution for us in the passage today. So, we might think to ourselves, and I believe that we are, we're prone to do this, you know, it seems like the proclamation and the ministry and the evangelism are a really big deal. I mean, it's like, like fire and wind and noise. Big deal, right? I don't mean simply that they're important. I mean that they, they have to be a big show, a big event, something creative with noise and lights and fire. We have to do something to get the people's attention with a really big deal, you know, the way the Spirit did. We have to speak their language, we think, to ourselves. But let me be very clear, that is the very opposite of what this text has for us this morning and the, the purpose for which God sent His Spirit. Remember, the apostles and the other disciples were sent to the upper room to wait they're the business of the church before the Spirit of God moves among them is to wait upon the Lord. They weren't to strategize and to scheme and to get creative. They weren't sent to dream up a big show by which they could convince the world that Jesus is raised from the dead. 
In fact, Jesus' clear command prior to the crucifixion was quite simple. When he met with them himself in an upper room, perhaps the same one, he gave them this instruction on the week that he was crucified. He said, love one another. Love one another. Abide in my word. Keep my commandments. That does not sound like a loud noise or tongues as of fire. That sounds quite ordinary to me. And that's what we find the disciples doing in an upper room when he sets the place ablaze. It's as they were going about the simple, the ordinary things that the Spirit shows himself to be the great power, the great glory. Friends, that's grace and freedom. I, you, we, we don't have to put on a big show in our workplaces or in our homes or among our friends or when we gather. We don't have to dream up a great big display or come up with the perfect metaphor. The Holy Spirit is quite capable of blowing His mighty rushing wind at any moment He chooses. And if we will busy ourselves with the ordinary works, then we see the disciples go so quickly back to those same ordinary works. They devote themselves to the Word. They love one another in fellowship. They pray to the Lord. If we devote ourselves to these things, when will we see the Spirit of God work among the people of God? There's a beautiful metaphor that uh, Jonathan Edwards shares. He, he, he shares of those times when it seems to be the dry season. And you're not sure where the, the, the power is, where the refreshment is, where the, the mighty rushing streams are. And so what you do is you go around to the stream bed where the, you know there used to be movement. You knew there used to be water. There's evidence by the way the ground is cut up there. And you know what? In my life, the evidence of the stream bed is in the Word and in prayer. It's in the gathering of the saints and the love that is seen there. It is in that stream bed that the Lord has met me mightily in the past. And so he says this, in the dry times, Go where the streams do flow. And we find in this passage the streams flow, and they flow with a mighty, rushing, living water sort of speed. In the Word, in prayer, in the ordinary things, and may the Spirit of God blow there. Heavenly Father, we are desperate for You. We cannot meet a quota and declare that we're ready now. We can't read enough and pray enough. We can't preach en enough. We cannot sing enough. We wait. We wait upon You in things that we believe are profitable. The Scriptures that we are devoted to themselves declare that they are profitable for Your people. And Lord, I pray that Your Spirit would continue to do what You have already done and we would see You move again. And the miracle of seeing people who were once lost declaring the mighty works of God would take place in our midst. And there would be proclamation to the ends of the earth, literally, as You send us. 
as you have sent us. Thank you, Lord. We, we trust you for this. It is our only hope. Thank you, Lord. We pray this in your good name, in the name of Jesus. Amen.